everyone. Welcome to our episode of In Conversation with IPR and Competition Law. I am Ishita Borua, today's host of this podcast episode. We hope you have listened to our previous episodes as well. Today, we have Guido Notala Diega Sir. He is an Associate Professor of Intellectual Property Law and Privacy Law at the University of Stirling, where he directs the Just AI Lab chairs the Scottish Law and Innovative Network, which is also known as Scotland, and coordinates the IP and media law modules. His main expertise is in the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, robotics, and blockchain. Holder of a PhD, a postdoctoral from Queen Mary University London, and a HEA Fellow, he has published in leading international journals such as the European Intellectual Property Review and the European Journal of Law and Technology. Sir's works are published in English, Italian, Russian, and Korean and have been cited by the EU Court of Justice's Advocate General, the House of Lords, the European Commission, and the Council of Europe. Outside of Sterling, he is a member of the European Commission Expert Group on AI in Education follow the Nexa Center for Internet and Society, Research Associate at UCL Center for Blockchain Technologies and co-convener of the open section of the Society of Legal Scholars, the oldest and the largest society of law academics in the UK and the Republic of Ireland. Alongside research and teaching, he is a qualified lawyer called to the Bar of Italy in 2013 a consultant for public and private organization and he is also an lgbtq plus rights activist hello mr guido sir welcome to our podcast oh hello Ishita. it's a pleasure to be here sir has your experience how has your experience been as an associate professor of intellectual property law and privacy law at the university of sterling can you please tell us in your words Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I I feel extremely lucky to, to be working here in Scotland at the University of Stirling. Um, it's a position that gives me a lot of freedom uh, to research really anything that I'm interested in and I get to work with fantastic colleagues and, and students. So I couldn't ask for for more. And before this, you know, I've had a very kind of an international career as well with a, a PhD from Italy and then a postdoc uh, in, in the UK. But I've been teaching and researching many countries around the world, um, Brazil, Russia, Germany, Switzerland, Italy. And at the moment, I'm also uh, a Martin Flynn Global Law Professor at the University of Connecticut in the US. So I really cannot complain. I think I've been very lucky in my career. Yeah, that's very excellent, sir. Um, also, uh, Mr. Guido, since we know uh, today our discussion would be about your book on Internet of Things and Law. Uh, sir, what drove you to wrote this book, Internet of Things and Law? Well, there are mainly three reasons. Uh, I think the IoT, the Internet of Things, is really important from at least three points of view. One, it's, it's economically important um, because we know that IoT profits average uh, 5.2 billion US dollars, 7.7 by uh, 2026. So essentially generates more wealth than uh, some many small uh, small countries around the world. And IoT innovation grows 
even faster than other types of innovation. If you look at just patents, for example, IoT patents grow annually 40% faster than any other technologies. But IoT, you know, I am a scholar, so for me, it's also very theoretically uh, important. Uh, I think it's been overlooked um, because for centuries, uh, lawyers, legal scholars have been thinking about how do we apply laws that were designed for the, for the tangible wor for world to the, the intangible world. Uh, you know, the issues of digitization, tokenization, etc. Whereas with the IoT, you have the opposite problem. You have, you know, the problem of things that were designed or traditionally conceived as intangible, like data, services, software, etc., that now become tangible because they are embedded in physical uh, devices. So that's a big challenge from a theoretical point of view. And the IoT is also very socially uh, important. If you think about the fact that we have double the amount of smart devices than there are people in the world, we'll have 32 billion uh, smart devices by 2025. And some colleagues have started looking into kind of this phenomenon. Uh, you know, that probably the most famous uh, book uh, would be Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. But all, most studies so far have been uh, mainly focusing on issues of privacy. Whereas I think that the IoT poses a threat to all of our fundamental rights. Sir, uh, what is IoT all about? How is IPR interlinked, uh, interlinked with IoT? From the perspective of your book, uh, can you brief us? Yes, of course. There is not one commonly accepted definition of the Internet of Things. So the definition that I put forward in my book is that a smart device is an inextricable mix of hardware, software, service, digital contents and data that has interconnectivity, sensing and actuating capabilities and interfaces the physical world. So if I can maybe break down into the key components of this uh, definition, one is physicality. So a smart device has to have a, a physical, a tangible sort of component to it, or we would traditionally call the hardware, uh, but also physicality because it, a smart device acts on the physical world. Uh, a smart device is interconnected. That means that it is connected to the internet, but also connected uh, to other devices and to a network. Uh, a smart device has sensors, sensors you know like uh, cameras for example that transform and translate uh, our real world uh, into data flows but also uh, smart devices have actuators that means that a smart device uses the information about the world to actually have a physical effect on the world itself a very kind of a maybe silly example could be uh, the fact that you could use a virtual assistant, for example, Alexa or uh, Google Home, to turn on and off the light. Uh, and that's a physical effect on the physical world. But obviously, we can scale up and think about, for example, smart devices used, used in, a, in a factory, for example, to control some piece of machinery. Um, and, and finally, this idea that uh, the IoT is not just about hardware, it's not just about software, it's not just about data, it's an inextricable mix of hardware, software, service, digital contents and data. And that's really important to, uh, as lawyers to keep uh, in mind. And the interconnection with the intellectual property rights 
you know, you can observe it through uh, at many levels, really. But probably the, the easiest way to think about it is that any component of your smart devices uh, is protected by some IPRs. And often these IPRs are owned by different companies. And the use of these IPRs or sometimes the abuse of these IPRs can lead to what we can call the debt of ownership. And maybe it's something that can we can look into uh, later on in this podcast. Um, what IP rights are involved in an IoT device? Do they overlap? And I would also like to ask you another uh, following question with that, is that even though the owner of a smart device owns the content in it, do they really own it? Uh, also, can you kindly explain uh, this with the reference of the debt of ownership? Yes, so I'm going to start with uh, the first bit of this question, that is what IPRs are involved in an IoT device. Probably the simplest way to think about it is to think about your uh, phone. Most of us will have, uh, but at this point, uh, some form of smartphone. Um, probably the, if you think about what kind of intellectual property rights cover your iPhone, probably the most immediate uh, thing that comes to your mind is the IPRs that uh, cover the design of your phone. You know that one type of IPRs are design rights, um, but design rights cover also the arrangement and the shape of the buttons and the position and the shape of the screen, for example. There are issues of trademarks and the logo and the name of your phone, even the type of uh, the product, for example, let's say Tokyo, Nokia 208, uh, the startup tone, uh, could be both protected through trademarks but also protected through copyright and copyright will cover issues like things like the source code and the object code uh, of the software, the user manuals, uh, ringtones, images. We'll have issues of patents covering and utility models covering data processing methods, operating system, the operational user interfaces and last but not least uh, issues around trade secrets. For example, it's very likely that the algorithms that sort of run in the in your phone are covered by some form of uh, of trade secret. Now, uh, as you mentioned, there is an issue of overlap because if if any aspect, any layer of your device is covered by some IPR, then it's very likely that these different uh, these different IPRs will uh, overlap. So maybe it's useful for our listeners to think of, to explain what IP overlaps are and why do they exist. Um, the, the, the sort of background is that we have hundreds of intellectual property laws that have over time increased the types of subject matter that is eligible for protection they have widened and strengthened the owner's exclusive rights and they have provided new discrete IP rights for their protection. The classic examples are uh, the, the sort of extensions of IP laws to cover databases and, and software. But we've had also more recent examples, for example, uh, the EU Directive on Digital Single Market uh, introduced a new uh, right for uh, publishers, for example. Uh, this phenomenon and the subsequent issue of overlaps is in part a consequence of the fact that the expansion of IPRs at the international level is more extensive than ever. And again, you're in India, I'm in the UK, so it's really interesting to think about the international dimension of uh, this. Uh, you're probably aware of the fact that if a country 
wishes to be a member of the WTO, they have to accept to be bound by the agreement on trade-related aspects and intellectual property rights, the so-called TRIPS. Now, there are two things to keep in mind. Number one, the lack of adequate protection of IPRs is regarded as a breach of the TRIPS obligations that would fall under the jurisdictions uh, of the WTO dispute settlement body. Whereas conversely, it is left to the state's discretion whether or not to introduce IP exceptions. Second, we have the so-called TRIPS plus provisions, free trade agreements that introduce stronger IP protection in exchange for trade opportunities at the expenses of the general public. What you need to realize thinking about IP overlaps and the IoT is that the IoT makes IP overlaps really uh, ubiquitous. Uh, now, the second part of your question was um, about whether or not uh, we as owners of smart devices, actually, we own the devices, we own the content of these devices uh, or not. And this goes back to what I just briefly mentioned uh, previously, this idea of the debt of ownership. When we buy a smart device, we are under the expectation that we own the device, we own the content of this device. However, that's not often the case. That's what we mean uh, by the death of ownership. We mean two different things. One, uh, and which is not what we're going to look into uh, in, in this podcast, um, is the idea that um, we are seeing a shift from the sales contract to the subscription model. So increasingly, rather than actually purchasing a device, we are renting a device, we are subscribing. Uh, so we are paying a sum every month to be able to use a certain device, for example, a connected car. Uh, but what I'm more interested in and what is more important from an IP perspective is a different type of death of ownership. It's the death of ownership that we have when we buy a smart device so in theory we are the owners however the iot companies retain control over the device via iprs contracts and technological measures uh, so we are owners of our devices but only formally in reality we cannot exercise those powers that would be traditionally associated with uh, the, the, uh, with the right of uh, property. So through IP-enabled post-sale control over the device, IoT companies are responsible for a system that uh, Professor Fairfield sees as reminiscent of the feudal times, where people would only manage property subject to the ruler's will. So we are some sort of digital uh, serfs. Thank you so much for explaining this whole concept in such a beautiful way. So uh, the next question is that, uh, can you please elucidate the principle of exhaustion? Uh, what is the significance of this principle with respect to the recent case of Tom Cabinet? Um, can you also explain it with the example of ebooks and copyright law? Thank you. That's a very good question because the principle of exhaustion, in, in theory, it could play a very important role in addressing uh, some sort of power abuses that we see in the IoT and in particular the death uh, of ownership. And a recent case, uh, there is the Tom Cabinet case, which is a EU Court of Justice case, would be, uh, it's really important to understand. Uh, and it's a case that deals with the legality of a virtual market for secondhand ebooks. So the question uh, to ask is whether once you buy an ebook, can you resell it 
or not? Or can the IP holder stop you, prevent you from reselling it? And this all revolves around the principle of exhaustion. So what do we mean by uh, exhaustion? Uh, under the principle of exhaustion, the resale of an IP protected product uh, without, is possible without the IP owner's permission. So once the IP owner uh, puts on the market a certain product, they cannot use their IP rights to prevent you from reselling uh, or exporting, for example, that uh, product. The principle of exhaustion that in the US is known as first sale doctrine uh, applies to all IPRs, copyright, trademarks, etc. And it provides that once a product protected, you know, when it comes to exhaustion in Europe, once a product protected by an IPR has been lawfully put on the market within the European economic area by the rights holder or with their consent, the rights conferred by that IPR in relation to the commercial exploitation of the good become exhausted. Now, um, unfortunately, it's a principle that is very complex to understand, so I'm going to try and, and kind of simplify as, as much as possible. Uh, the principle of exhaustion applies not applies to only certain uh, copyrights. So in Europe, uh, we and in many countries around the world, uh, the rights holder, the copyright owner, has certain exclusive rights. One is the right to distribution, which is the right to issue copies of the work to the public, the right to put the work into circulation. Now, the principle of exhaustion applies to the, to the right to distribution. So the right to distribution cannot be used to prevent the resale of an IP protected product. Uh, whereas conversely, the, the right to communication to the public is another right. It's the right to make the works available to the public in a way that the public may access them from a place and at a time individually chosen by them is not subject to exhaustion. An example, the classic example of the right to communication to the public is a hyperlink. Okay, so if you're posting a hyperlink on your blog, uh, you're doing a form of right to, or you're exercising the right to communication to the public. So, uh, on the one hand, if you, the right to distribution is subject to exhaustion, whereas on the other hand, the right to communication to the public is not subject to the exhaustion. And, and this is an important context to understand the Tom Cabinet case. Again, it's a EU Court of Justice uh, case from 2020 about uh, whether or not you can resell uh, an ebook once you bought it. In particular, in the, in the Tom Cabinet case, uh, what you would do, users would uh, download for permanent use an ebook. So it would not, would not be something that you would access uh, on the cloud, for example. You would download the ebook for your permanent use. So the question is, is this download for permanent use of an ebook a form of distribution? Uh, in which case exhaustion applies, or it's a form of communication to uh, the public. Now, the decision of the Court of Justice really surprised everyone, I think, or most people, because we were expecting that the Court of Justice would apply uh, the, U, the, the sort of the previous jurisprudence as formulated in the used soft versus Oracle case. In that case, there was a case about um, computer computer programs, not about uh, ebooks in particular, but in that case, the, the Court of Justice uh, held that the right to distribution of a computer program is subject to exhaustion 
regardless of whether it is incorporated in a tangible medium. That means that it doesn't matter whether or not there is a physical device. Uh, you know, the, the, the distribution of a computer program is always subject to, uh, to exhaustion. That means that once you download a computer program, once you download a piece of software, then if you do it so uh, lawfully, obviously, you can resell it. Okay, that's a very important thing. Uh, that's how the principle of exhaustion operates. However, the Court of Justice takes a different approach. Uh, in the Tom Cabinet case, and really narrows down the scope of the used soft doctrine. And it does so in two ways. Number one, the Court of Justice tells us that uh, an ebook is not a computer program, and therefore different rules apply. An ebook, according to the Court of Justice, is a digital copyright product. So it's something different. Um, the second uh, point of the Court of Justice is that. Uh, the InfoSoc Directive, that is the main copyright directive in the European Union, relies on the tangible-intangible divide. So if something is tangible, then we have the right to distribution and therefore we have exhaustion. If something is intangible, then we have the right to communication to the public and therefore we have no uh, exhaustion. And I believe that this decision, and I do so in, in my book, uh, can criticize can be criticized for two reasons. First, because it's not true that an ebook is not a computer program. If you think about the fact that a computer program can be defined as a collection of instructions that can be executed by a computer to perform a specific task, then it's clear to me that an ebook falls within the scope of a computer program. And the second is that the decision of the Court of Justice of the European Union leads to what we can call the exhaustion of the principle of exhaustion. Smart devices are nowadays sold intact with software that is pre-installed and it's not removable or changeable under the license agreement. Software is not bundled separately anymore. To predicate that the exhaustion of IPRs depends on the tangible-intangible divide is an outdated approach that is at odds with the smart reality we live in. Um, thank you so much uh, for explaining this, sir. Sir, uh, also, uh, can uh, IP regulatory compliance help tackle the unethical tactical control of our smart devices by the IoT giants? That's, that's a very good point, because uh, what I initially did in my research was exploring the potential um, for IP exceptions to be used uh, to tackle the issue of death uh, of the death of ownership. So, in other words, what I was thinking was, yes, it's true that IoT companies uh, and other third parties can exercise IPRs, uh, the IPRs that they hold over my device or over some uh, components of my device, uh, in order to uh, you know to retain control over the device or some aspects of my device. But at the same time. Uh, as an end user, I do have some, I can rely on certain IP exceptions to regain some form of control over the device. And there are a number of IP exceptions that uh, might be relevant in this uh, context. Again, this is a very kind of an EU, European uh, focused um, study, but many of these exceptions will exist in most uh, jurisdictions. Uh, so, for example, most jurisdictions will have some form of copyright exceptions that cover um, any activity of observation, study and tests of the functioning of a computer program. 
reverse engineering, private copy. Then we have, at least in Europe, rights on databases, but they are, uh, these rights on databases are in a way limited through some exceptions, such as the insubstantial extraction and reutilization exception. Uh, we have a trade secrets directive that has some exceptions, such as the use of a trade secret for freedom of information purposes. We have the trademarks directives and regulations that provide some certain exceptions. For example, the use of a trademark that is not in the course of trade and it is with, with due cause, uh, as well as design, design rights uh, instruments that provide for exceptions for acts done privately and for non-commercial purposes. However, what I found uh, in, in the book is that an exception, uh, a strategy that aims to use and rely on IP exceptions to tackle uh, IP abuses, unfortunately, uh, will is likely to be unsuccessful for reasons connected to the IP overlaps that I mentioned before. Uh, yes, um, correct. And uh, also, sir, uh, how should the licensing agreements be drafted, keeping in mind the various IP exceptions, considering the fact that some IP exceptions are mandatory and some are discretionary? Thank you. As you correctly note, uh, there, are, there is a huge diversity when it comes to IP exceptions. Some exceptions are mandatory and others are left to the discretion of member states as to whether or not to implement them. Some exceptions are binding, others can be overridden contractually. Some cover unauthorized commercial uses, others do not. Some are regarded as user rights and others as mere exceptions. Also considering that the relevant IPRs are owned by different rights holders, it's unlikely that licensing can resolve these issues. The ideal solutions, I think, would be an international treaty that would streamline IP exceptions. And this would build on that very important work that the Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Competition has made through the proposal for an international instrument on permitted uses in copyright law. Uh, sir, uh, what strategy do you suggest to tackle the debt of ownership with context to IoT? Are there any drawbacks to this strategy? Uh, if yes, how can this uh, drawbacks be addressed? Yes, so uh, a, a strategy to tackle the debt of ownership, uh, the death of ownership that is focused on IP exceptions has mainly two drawbacks. Number one, exceptions may indeed counter some IP abuses and arguably also abuses that revolve around digital rights management and other uh, technological protection measures. However, they are useless against other technological controls, factual controls, control over service and data power. The second reason, the second drawback uh, is what we called before the IP overlaps. The existence of overlapping IPRs that cover the device and the divergence between which acts are permitted without the owner's consent is the main argument against the strategy that aims to counter the IoT's death of ownership by invoking IP exceptions. And I will explain it very kind of simply uh, through an example. For, uh, in, under copyright law, uh, many copyright laws around the world have uh, an IP exception that covers reverse engineering of the software. However, if that software is also protected under patent law, then patent law doesn't regard reverse engineering as a form of IP exception. So patent law would regard that same activity 
as a form of infringement. So in other words, when overlaps occur, and in the IoT overlaps, IP overlaps are the rule rather than the exception, the strictest re regime overrides the more generous one. In the example that I've just made, that means that patent law will prevail on uh, copyright law, and therefore uh, you, you as an end user of an IT, IoT device will not be able to say, well, what I did was covered by um, the, IP, the copyright exception uh, of reverse engineering because the same copyright exception constitute a form of infringement of another IPR, a patent. Um, in the case of IoT, various IP rights are involved and they generally overlap with each other. Don't you think such overlapping rights further uh, deteriorate IP exceptions? Certainly. Uh, and that's why in my book, I, I try to also find other solutions to uh, the kind of problems of IP abuses uh, and in general to the threats to fundamental rights that we see in the IoT. I started by looking at um, antitrust or competition law and in particular uh, as to whether uh, the, the forms, the certain behaviors of the owners of a standard essential patent can be regarded as a form of abuse of dominant position. However, both in the US and in Europe, I've seen that unfortunately the case law is very much uh, in favor of uh, property holders as opposed to uh, antitrust interests. Um, and more generally, uh, if we think about the role of the law and of law reform to address many of the issues that we have in the IoT, we need to say we need to say that unfortunately law reform is really slow. It's influenced by lobbies. Um, our lawmakers are not tech savvy. The law tends to rely on binaries uh, and um, even taking a Marxist approach, for example, we can see how the law is intrinsically pro-powers that be. Technology is also a type, uh, can provide some solutions. We can use technologies to address certain issues in technology itself, but we need to make sure that we don't fall foul um, of certain uh, principles and that we don't end up being deterministic, techno-solutionistic and technocratic. Ethics is part of the picture too. Ethics can be used, uh, you know, ethical initiatives uh, for better IoT uh, must be welcomed, but ethics cannot be a replacement for forms of regulation. And that's what we call ethics washing. Ethics has a number of issues around the fact that it's not binding, uh, that it's siloed, and issues around digital colonialism, for example. And finally, uh, what I really uh, think could be a very promising strategy is a strategy that revolves around the concept of the commons. The commons meant in, two, in a twofold meaning. Uh, on the one hand, as open source, and this is something that obviously we've seen already explored by other studies, but commons also as a form of collective resistance. Um, okay, uh, thank you for explaining this to us, sir. And uh, so since we have come to the end of the question answer session, the last question that I'd like to ask you is that what are the life lessons that you'd like to uh, disseminate to the audiences and also uh, some book recommendations which you'd really, uh, you really like to uh, tell the young potential innovators to read so that it can redirect their mind to think outside the box. 
Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I think there are so many lessons, but in maybe in one minute, it, it, it's hard to pick one. But if I had to pick one, uh, I, I would expand maybe on the concept of the commons uh, that I mentioned uh, that I mentioned before. So the idea of collective resistance. So traditionally, if you think about the commons, um, so it's the commons are traditionally about physical resources. So for example, let's imagine a park. Uh, the, the, your city's park, and at some point, uh, this is sold to a private company to uh, to develop a shopping center, and that's what happened uh, in Jezi Park in Turkey some years ago. And when there was this risk, the local communities occupied the park to protect it, and that's a form of collective resistance to, to protect the commons, at least the physical commons. Uh, in the IUT because the IoT sort of challenges the idea of a tangible, intangible uh, kind of a binary. Uh, in the IoT, we have a cyber physical world. Then for me, the, the IoT is an opportunity to extend the conflict from the tangible world to the cyber physical world. And we are seeing already a, a number of different forms of collective resistance. Uh, we're seeing forms of uh, unionizing, for example, in Italy, the main trade union uh, brought a successful lawsuit against Deliveroo, uh, and they proved that the algorithm that Deliveroo was using was discriminatory. In the US, we've seen what we call the tech clash. Tech clash means that uh, the workers of Google and other big tech have organized to protest against certain unethical uses of technology by. Uh, by their employers. There are so many community-led projects such as Better IoT, uh, Open, Open IoT, uh, Arduino, etc. And a lot of bottom-up collective projects. Uh, I think one of the things I'm particularly passionate about is that we have around 2,000 IoT meetups around the world with approximately uh, 1 million and a half members. A lot of these meetups uh, are in the global south. And I think that's where really the hope uh, lies. So the real challenge that we have now is to how to create alliances between different groups, different uh, you know, collectives, uh, in order to make sure that we can actually make the IoT a better place. And, and something that happened very recently gave me some hope uh, because a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, the Alliance for Universal Digital Rights was launched by Equality Now and Women Leading in AI. And these are two groups, Equality Now and Women Leading in AI, that are traditionally focused on issues around gender equality. But now they realized that actually you cannot have gender equality without universal digital rights. And I would extend by saying you cannot have, you know, uh, sex, uh, sexuality equality without uh, universal digital rights. You cannot have race uh, justice, racial justice without universal digital rights. So we need to find alliances between diverse and different groups in order to address the issues in the IoT. And in terms of uh, book recommendation, there are so many good books. I would in particular recommend alongside Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism, another woman who is uh, Julie Cohen, uh, Cohen's book Between Truth and uh, Power. Really amazing woman, really amazing work. Thank you so much, sir. And those are really uh, great things that young people and youngsters like us should delve upon about uh, gender equality um, and 
the all the diverse uh, lessons that uh, you just told us to look into and also thank you so much for the book recommendations too and i also hope that your book that is the internet of things and law uh, everyone should read that book and should get a grasp about what does iot is and how does ip also overlap with it uh, thank you Thank you so much Guido sir it was a pleasure to have you uh, on our podcast and discuss internet of things and law which was a book discussion series with respect to intellectual property rights um, it was an interesting session and i hope sir even you enjoyed it too I loved being here thank you so much i would also like to thank all the listeners for tuning into today's episode for queries suggestions and recommendations please feel free to contact us on our twitter instagram or linkedin accounts thank you everyone for listening to this episode of book discussion in our podcast hope to host more talk shows this way we all will learn together the aspects and prospects of ipr and competition law this is in conversation with ipr and competition law see you soon in the next episode